Welcome to the 45th reading of the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 4, Chapter 10, Section 18. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 18. For this reason we freely inveigh against that tyranny of human traditions, which is haughtily obtruded upon us in the name of the church. Nor do we hold the church in derision, as our adversaries, for the purpose of producing obloquy, unjustly accuse us. But we attribute to her the praise of obedience, in which there is none which she acknowledges to be greater. They themselves rather are emphatically injurious to the church, in representing her as contumacious to her Lord, when they pretend that she goes farther than the word of God allows, to say nothing of their combined impudence and malice in continually vociferating about the power of the church, while they meanwhile disguise both the command which the Lord has given her and the obedience which she owes to the command. But if our wish is, as it ought to be, to agree with the church, it is of more consequence to consider and remember the injunction which the Lord has given both to us and to the church, to obey him with one consent. For there can be no doubt that we shall best agree with the church when we show ourselves obedient to the Lord in all things. But to ascribe the origin of the traditions by which the church has hitherto been oppressed to the apostles is mere imposition, since the whole substance of the doctrine of the apostles is that conscience must not be burdened with new observances, nor the worship of God contaminated by our inventions. Then, if any credit is to be given to ancient histories and records, what they attribute to the apostles was not only unknown to them, but was never heard by them. Nor let them pretend that most of their decrees, though not delivered in writing, were received by use and practice, being things which they could not understand while Christ was in the world, but which they learned after his ascension by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. The meaning of that passage has been explained elsewhere. See chapter 8, section 14. In regard to the present question, they make themselves truly ridiculous, seeing it is manifest that all those mysteries which so long were undiscovered by the apostles are partly Jewish or Gentile observances, the former of which had anciently been promulgated among the Jews, and the latter among all the Gentiles, partly absurd gesticulations and empty ceremonies, which stupid priests who have neither sense nor letters can duly perform nay, which children and mountebanks perform so appropriately that it seems impossible to have fitter priests for such sacrifices. If there were no records, men of sense would judge from the very nature of the case that such a mass of rites and observances did not rush into the church all at once, but crept in gradually. For though the venerable bishops who were nearest in time to the apostles introduced some things pertaining to order and discipline, those who came after them, and those that after them again had not enough of consideration, while they had too much curiosity and cupidity, he who came last, always vying in foolish emulation with his predecessors, so as not to be surpassed in the invention of novelties. And because there was a danger that these inventions, from which they anticipated praise from posterity, might soon become obsolete, they were much more rigorous in insisting on the observance of them. This false zeal has produced a great part of the rites which these men represent as apostolical. This history attests. Section 19. And not to become prolix by giving a catalogue of all, we shall be contented with one example. Under the apostles there was great simplicity in administering the Lord's Supper. Their immediate successors made some additions to the dignity of the ordinance, which are not to be disapproved. Afterwards came foolish imitators who, by ever and anon patching various fragments together, have left us those sacerdotal vestments which we see in the Mass, those altar ornaments, those gesticulations, 
and whole farrago of useless observances. But they object that in old time the persuasion was that those things which were done with the consent of the whole church proceeded from the apostles. Of this they quote Augustine as a witness. I will give the explanation in the very words of Augustine. Quote, those things which are observed over the whole world, we may understand to have been appointed either by the apostles themselves or by general councils, whose authority in the church is most beneficial as the annual solemn celebration of our Lord's passion, resurrection, and ascension to heaven, and of the descent of the Holy Spirit, and any other occurrence observed by the whole church wherever it exists, unquote. In giving so few examples, who sees not that he meant to refer the observances then in use to authors deserving of faith and reverence, observances few and sober by which it was expedient that the order of the church should be maintained. How widely does this differ from the view of our Roman masters, who insist that there is no paltry ceremony among them which is not apostolical? Section 20. Not to be tedious, I will give only one example. Should anyone ask them where they get their holy water, they will at once answer, from the apostles. As if I did not know who the Roman bishop is, to whom history ascribes the invention, and who, if he had admitted the apostles to his council, assuredly never would have adulterated baptism by a foreign and unseasonable symbol. Although it does not seem probable to me that the origin of that consecration is so ancient as is there recorded. For when Augustine says that certain churches in his day rejected the formal imitation of Christ in the washing of feet, lest that rite should seem to pertain to baptism, he intimates that there was then no kind of washing which had any resemblance to baptism. Be this as it may, I will never admit that the apostolic spirit gave rise to that daily sign by which baptism, while brought back to remembrance, is in a manner repeated. I attach no importance to the fact that Augustine elsewhere ascribes other things to the apostles. For as he has nothing better than conjecture, it is not sufficient for forming a judgment concerning a matter of so much moment. Lastly, though we should grant that the things which he mentions are derived from the apostolic age, there is a great difference between instituting some exercise of piety which believers may use with a free conscience, or may abstain from, if they think the observance not to be useful, and enacting a law which brings the conscience into bondage. Now, indeed, whoever is the author from whom they are derived, since we see the great abuses to which they have led, there is nothing to prevent us from abrogating them without any imputation on him, since he never recommended them in such a way as to lay us under a fixed and immovable obligation to observe them. Section 21. It gives them no great help in defending their tyranny to pretend the example of the apostles. The apostles and elders of the primitive church, according to them, sanctioned a decree without any authority from Christ, by which they commanded all the Gentiles to abstain from meat offered to idols, from things strangled, and from blood. Acts 15, verse 20. If this was lawful for them, why should not their successors be allowed to imitate the example as often as occasion requires? Would that they would always imitate them both in this and in other matters? For I am ready to prove on valid grounds that here nothing new has been instituted or decreed by the apostles. For when Peter declares in that council that God is tempted if a yoke is laid on the necks of the disciples, he overthrows his own argument if he afterwards allows a yoke to be imposed on them. But it is imposed if the apostles on their own authority prohibit the Gentiles from touching meat offered to idols, things strangled, and blood. The difficulty still remains that they seem nevertheless to prohibit them, but this will easily be removed by attending more closely to the meaning of their decree. The first thing in order, and the chief thing in importance is, that the Gentiles were to retain their liberty which was not to be disturbed, and that they were not to be annoyed with the observances of the law. As yet the decree is all in our favor. The reservation which immediately follows is not a new law enacted by the apostles, but a divine and eternal command of God against the violation of charity, which does not detract one iota from that liberty. It only reminds the Gentiles how they are to accommodate themselves to their brother, and not to abuse their liberty for an occasion of offense. Let the second head, therefore, be that the Gentiles are to use an innoxious liberty giving no offense to the brethren. Still, however, they prescribe some certain thing, viz. They show and point out, as was expedient at the time, what those things are by which they may give offense to their brethren, that they may avoid them. But they add no novelty of their own to the eternal law of God, which forbids the offense of brethren. Section 22. 
as in the case where faithful pastors presiding over churches not yet well constituted should intimate to their flocks not to eat flesh on Friday until the week among whom they live become strong, or to work on a holiday, or any other similar things, although when superstition is laid aside, these matters are in themselves indifferent, still, where offense is given to the brethren, they cannot be done without sin. So there are times when believers cannot set this example before weak brethren without most grievously wounding their consciences. Who but a slanderer would say that a new law is enacted by those who, it is evident, only guard against scandals which their master has distinctly forbidden. But nothing more than this can be said of the apostles, who had no other end in view in removing grounds of offense than to enforce the divine law which prohibits offense, as if they had said, the Lord hath commanded you not to hurt a weak brother, but meats offered to idols, things strangled, and blood ye cannot eat without offending weak brethren. We therefore require you in the word of the Lord not to eat with offense. And to prove that the apostles had respect to this, the best witness is Paul, who writes as follows, undoubtedly according to the sentiments of the council. Quote, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things which are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. Unquote. Quote, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Unquote. Quote, but take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 9. Anyone who duly considers these things will not be imposed upon by a gloss which these men employ when, as a cloak to their tyranny, they pretend that the apostles had begun by their decree to infringe the liberty of the church but that they may be unable to escape without confessing the accuracy of this explanation, let them tell me by what authority they have dared to abrogate this very decree. It was, it seems, because there was no longer any danger of those offenses and dissensions which the apostles wished to obviate, and they knew that the law was to be judged by its end. Seeing, therefore, the law was passed with a view to charity, there is nothing prescribed in it except insofar as required by charity." and confessing that the transgression of this law is nothing but a violation of charity, do they not at the same time acknowledge that it was not some adventitious supplement to the law of God, but a genuine and simple adaptation of it to the times and manners for which it was destined? Section 23. But though such laws are hundreds of times unjust and injurious to us, still they contend that they are to be heard without exception, for the thing asked of us is not to consent to errors, but only to submit to the strict commands of those set over us, commands which we are not at liberty to decline. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. But here also the Lord comes to the succor of his word and frees us from this bondage by asserting the liberty which he has purchased for us by his sacred blood, and the benefit of which he has more than once attested by his word. For the thing required of us is not, as they maliciously pretend, to endure some grievous oppression in our body but to be tortured in our consciences and brought into bondage, in other words, robbed of the benefits of Christ's blood. Let us omit this, however, as if it were irrelevant to the point. Do we think it a small matter that the Lord is deprived of his kingdom, which he so strictly claims for himself? Now he is deprived of it as often as he is worshipped with laws of human invention, since his will is to be sole legislator of his worship. Lest anyone should consider this as of small moment, let us hear how the Lord himself estimates it. Quote, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but they have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men, therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among the people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Unquote. Isaiah 29, verses 13 and 14. And in another place, quote, But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Unquote. Matthew 15, verse 9. And indeed, when the children of Israel polluted themselves with manifold idolatries, the cause of the whole evil is ascribed to that impure mixture caused by their disregarding the commandments of God and framing new modes of worship. 
Accordingly, sacred history relates that the new inhabitants who had been brought by the king of Assyria from Babylon to inhabit Samaria were torn and destroyed by wild beasts, because they knew not the judgment or statutes of the God of that land. 2 Kings 17 verses 24 through 34 Though they had done nothing wrong in ceremonies, still their empty show could not have been approved by God. Meanwhile, he ceased not to punish them for the violation of his worship by the introduction of fictions alien from his word. Hence it is afterwards said that, terrified by the punishment, they adopted the rites prescribed in the law. But as they did not yet worship God purely, it is twice repeated that they feared him and feared not. Hence we infer that part of the reverence due to him consists in worshiping him simply in the way which he commands, without mingling any inventions of our own. And accordingly, pious princes are repeatedly praised, 2 Kings 22, verse 1, etc., for acting according to all his precepts and not declining either to the right hand or the left. I go further. Although there be no open manifestation of impiety and fictitious worship, it is strictly condemned by the Spirit, inasmuch as it is a departure from the command of God. The altar of Ahaz, a model of which had been brought from Damascus, 2 Kings 16, verse 10, might have seemed to give additional ornament to the temple, seeing it was his intention there to offer sacrifices to God only, and to do it more splendidly than at the first ancient altar. If we see how the Spirit detests the audacious attempt for no other reasons but because human inventions are in the worship of God impure corruptions, and the more clearly the will of God has been manifested to us, the less excusable is our petulance in attempting anything. Accordingly, the guilt of Manasseh is aggravated by the circumstance of having erected a new altar at Jerusalem, of which the Lord said, quote, In Jerusalem I will put my name, unquote. 2 Kings 22, verses 3 and 4, because the authority of God was thereby professedly rejected. Section 24. Many wonder why God threatens so sternly that he will bring astonishment on the people who worship him with commandments of men, and declares that it is in vain to worship him with the commandments of men. But if they would consider what it is in the matter of religion, that is, of heavenly wisdom, to depend on God alone, they would at the same time see that it is not on slight grounds the Lord abominates perverse service of this description, which is offered him at the caprice of the human will. For although there is some show of humility in the obedience of those who obey such laws in worshiping God, yet they are by no means humble, since they prescribe to him the very laws which they observe. This is the reason why Paul would have us so carefully to beware of being deceived by the traditions of men, and what is called Greek word, Epsilon, Theta, Epsilon, Lambda, Omicron, Theta, Rho, Eta, Sigma, Chi, Epsilon, Iota, Alpha, Epilotriskeia, that is, voluntary worship, worship devised by men without sanction from God. Thus it is indeed, we must be fools in regard to our own wisdom and all the wisdom of men, in order that we may allow him alone to be wise. This course is by no means observed by those who seek to approve themselves to him by paltry observances of man's devising, and, as it were, against his will, obtrude upon him a prevaricating obedience which is yielded to men. This is the course which has been pursued for several ages, and within our own recollection is still pursued in the present day in those places in which the power of the creature is more than that of the Creator, where religion, if religion it deserves to be called, is polluted with more numerous and more absurd superstitions than ever paganism was. For what could human sense produce but things carnal and fatuous and savoring of their authors? Section 25 when the patrons of superstition cloaked them by pretending that Samuel sacrificed in Ramoth, and though he did so contrary to the law, yet pleased God, 1 Samuel 7, verse 17, it is easy to answer that he did not set up any second altar in opposition to the only true one. But as the place for the Ark of the Covenant had not been fixed, he sacrificed in the town where he dwelt as being the most convenient. It certainly never was the intention of the Holy Prophet to make any innovation in sacred things in regard to which the Lord had so strictly forbidden addition or diminution. The case of Manoah I consider to have been extraordinary and special. He, though a private man, offered sacrifice to God, and did it not without approbation, because he did it not from a rash movement of his own mind, but by divine inspiration. Judges 13 verse 19 
How much God abominates all the devices of men in his worship, we have a striking proof in the case of one not inferior to Manoah, these Gideon, whose ephod brought ruin not only on himself and his family, but on the whole people. Judges 8, verse 27. In short, every adventitious invention by which men desire to worship God is nothing else than a pollution of true holiness. Section 26. Why then, they ask, did Christ say that the intolerable burdens imposed by scribes and Pharisees were to be borne? Matthew 23, verse 3. Nay, rather, why did he say in another place that we were to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees? Matthew 16, verse 6. Meaning by leaven, as the evangelist Matthew explains it, whatever of human doctrine is mingled with the pure word of God. What can be plainer than that we are enjoined to shun and beware of their whole doctrine? From this it is most certain that in the other passage our Lord never meant that the consciences of his people were to be harassed by the mere traditions of the Pharisees, and the words themselves, unless when rested, have no such meaning. Our Lord, indeed, beginning to inveigh against the manners of the Pharisees, first instructs his hearers simply that though they saw nothing to follow in the lives of the Pharisees, they should not, however, cease to do what they verbally taught when they sat in the seat of Moses, that is, to expound the law. All he meant, therefore, was to guard the common people against being led by the bad example of their teachers to despise doctrine. But as some are not at all moved by reason and always require authority, I will quote a passage from Augustine in which the very same thing is expressed. Quote, The Lord's sheepfold has persons set over it, of whom some are faithful, others hirelings. Those who are faithful are true shepherds. Learn, however, that hirelings also are necessary. For many in the church, pursuing temporal advantages, preach Christ, and the voice of Christ is heard by them, and the sheep follow not a hireling, but the shepherd by means of a hireling. Learn that hirelings were pointed out by the Lord himself. The scribes and Pharisees, says he, sit in Moses' seat. What they tell you, do. But what they do, do ye not. What is this but to say, hear the voice of the shepherd by means of hirelings? Sitting in the chair, they teach the law of God, and therefore God teaches by them. But if they choose to teach their own, hear not, do not, unquote. Thus far, Augustine. Section 27. But as very many ignorant persons on hearing that it is impious to bind the conscience and vain to worship God with human traditions apply one blot to all the laws by which the order of the church is established, it will be proper to obviate their error. Here, indeed, the danger of mistake is great, for it is not easy to see at first sight how widely the two things differ. But I will, in a few words, make the matter so clear that no one will be imposed upon by the resemblance. First, then, let us understand that if in every human society some kind of government is necessary to ensure the common peace and maintain concord, if in transacting business some form must always be observed which public decency and hence humanity itself require us not to disregard, this ought especially to be observed in churches, which are best sustained by a constitution in all respects well-ordered, and without which concord can have no existence. Wherefore, if we would provide for the safety of the church, we must always carefully attend to Paul's injunction that all things be done decently and in order. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. But seeing there is such diversity in the manners of men, such variety in their minds, such repugnance in their judgments and dispositions, no policy is sufficiently firm unless fortified by certain laws, nor can any right be observed without a fixed form. So far, therefore, are we from condemning the laws which conduce to this, that we hold that the removal of them would unnerve the church, deface, and dissipate it entirely. For Paul's injunction that all things be done decently and in order cannot be observed unless order and decency be secured by the addition of ordinances as a kind of bonds. In these ordinances, however, we must always attend to the exception that they must not be thought necessary to salvation nor lay the conscience under a religious obligation. They must not be compared to the worship of God, nor substituted for piety. Section 28. We have, therefore, a most excellent and sure mark to distinguish between those impious constitutions by which, as we have said, true religion is overthrown and conscience subverted, and the legitimate observances of the church, if we remember that one of two things, or both together, are always intended, viz., that in the sacred assembly of the faithful all things may be done decently and with becoming dignity, and that human society may be maintained in order to certain bonds, as it were, of moderation and humanity. 
For when a law is understood to have been made for the sake of public decency, there is no room for the superstition into which those fall who measure the worship of God by human inventions. On the other hand, when a law is known to be intended for common use, that false idea of its obligation and necessity which gives a great alarm to the conscience when traditions are deemed necessary to salvation is overthrown, since nothing here is sought but the maintenance of charity by a common office. That it may be proper to explain more clearly what is meant by the decency which Paul commends, and also what is comprehended under order. And the object of decency is, partly, that by the use of rites, which produce reverence in sacred matters, we may be excited to piety, and partly that the modesty and gravity which ought to be seen in all honorable actions may here especially be conspicuous. In order, the first thing is that those who preside know the law and rule of right government, while those who are governed be accustomed to obedience and right discipline. The second thing is that by duly arranging the state of the church, provision be made for peace and tranquility. Section 29. We shall not, therefore, give the name of decency to that which only ministers an empty pleasure. Such, for example, as is seen in that theatrical display which the papists exhibit in their public service, where nothing appears but a mask of useless splendor and luxury without any fruit. For we give the name of decency to that which, suited to the reverence of sacred mysteries, forms a fit exercise for piety, or at least gives an ornament adapted to the action and is not without fruit, but reminds believers of the great modesty, seriousness, and reverence with which sacred things ought to be treated. Moreover, ceremonies, in order to be exercises of piety, must lead us directly to Christ. In like manner, we shall not make order consist in that nugatory pomp which gives nothing but evanescent splendor, but in that arrangement which removes all confusion, barbarism, contumacy, all turbulence and dissension. Of the former class we have examples, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 5 and 21, where Paul says that profane entertainments must not be intermingled with the sacred supper of the Lord, that women must not appear in public uncovered. And there are many other things which we have in daily practice, such as praying on our knees, and with our head uncovered, administering the sacraments of the Lord, not sordidly, but with some degree of dignity, employing some degree of solemnity in the burial of our dead, and so forth. And the other class are the hours set apart for public prayer, sermon, and solemn services. During sermon, quiet and silence, fixed places, singing of hymns, days set apart for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the prohibition of Paul against women teaching in the church, and such like. To the same list especially may be referred those things which preserve discipline, as catechizing, ecclesiastical censures, excommunication, fastings, etc., Thus, all ecclesiastical constitutions, which we admit to be sacred and salutary, may be reduced to two heads, the one relating to rites and ceremonies, the other to discipline and peace. Section 30. But as there is here a danger, on the one hand, lest false bishops should thence derive a pretext for their impious and tyrannical laws, and, on the other hand, lest some, too apt to take alarm, should, from fear of the above evils, leave no place for laws, however holy, it may here be proper to declare that I approve of those human constitutions only which are founded on the authority of God and derived from Scripture and are therefore altogether divine. Let us take, for example, the bending of the knee which is made in public prayer. It is asked whether this is a human tradition which any one is at liberty to repudiate or neglect. I say that it is human and that at the same time it is divine. It is of God, inasmuch as it is a part of that decency, the care and observance of which is recommended by the Apostle. And it is of men, inasmuch as it specially determines what was indicated in general, rather than expounded. From this one example we may judge what is to be thought of the whole class, these that the whole sum of righteousness, and all the parts of divine worship, and everything necessary to salvation, the Lord has faithfully comprehended, and clearly unfolded in the sacred oracles, so that in them he alone is the only master to be heard. But as in external discipline and ceremonies, he has not been pleased to prescribe every particular that we ought to observe, he foresaw that this depended on the nature of the times, and that one form would not suit all ages. In them we must have recourse to the general rules which he has given, employing them to test whatever the necessity of the church may require to be enjoined for order and decency. Lastly, as he has not delivered any express command, because things of this nature are not necessary to salvation, 
and for the edification of the church should be accommodated to the varying circumstances of each age and nation, it will be proper, as the interests of the church may require, to change and abrogate the old as well as to introduce new forms. I confess, indeed, that we are not to innovate rashly or incessantly or for trivial causes. Charity is the best judge of what tends to hurt or to edify. If we allow her to be guide, all things will be safe. Section 31 things which have been appointed according to this rule, it is the duty of the Christian people to observe with a free conscience indeed, and without superstition, but also with a pious and ready inclination to obey. They are not to hold them in contempt, nor pass them by with careless indifference, far less openly, to violate them in pride and contumacy. You will ask, what liberty of conscience will there be in such cautious observances? Nay, this liberty will admirably appear when we shall hold that these are not fixed and perpetual obligations to which we are restricted, but external rudiments for human infirmity, which, though we do not all need, we, however, all use, because we are bound to cherish mutual charity towards each other. This we may recognize in the examples given above. What is religion placed in a woman's bonnet, so that it is unlawful for her to go out with her head uncovered? Is her silence fixed by a decree which cannot be violated without the greatest wickedness? Is there any mystery in bending the knee or in burying a dead body which cannot be omitted without a crime? By no means. For should a woman require to make such haste in assisting a neighbor that she has not time to cover her head, she sends not in running out with her head uncovered. And there are some occasions on which it is not less seasonable for her to speak than on others to be silent. Nothing, moreover, forbids him who from disease cannot bend his knees to pray standing. In fine, it is better to bury a dead man quickly than from want of grave clothes, or the absence of those who should attend the funeral to wait till it rot away unburied. Nevertheless, in those matters, the custom and institutions of the country, in short, humanity and the rules of modesty itself, declare what is to be done or avoided. Here, if any error is committed through imprudence or forgetfulness, no crime is perpetrated. But if this is done from contempt, such contumacy must be disapproved. In like manner, it is of no consequence what the days and hours are, what the nature of the edifices, and what psalms are sung on each day. But it is proper that there should be certain days and stated hours, and a place fit for receiving all, if any regard is had to the preservation of peace. For what a seedbed of quarrels will confusion in such matters be, if every one is allowed at pleasure to alter what pertains to common order. All will not be satisfied with the same course if matters, placed as it were on debatable grounds, are left to the determination of individuals. But if anyone here becomes clamorous, and would be wiser than he ought, let him consider how he will approve his moroseness to the Lord. Paul's answer ought to satisfy us. Quote, if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Unquote. Section 32. Moreover, we must use the utmost diligence to prevent any error from creeping in which may either taint or sully this pure use. In this we shall succeed if whatever observances we use are manifestly useful, and very few in number, especially if to this is added the teaching of a faithful pastor which may prevent access to erroneous opinions. The effect of this procedure is that in all these matters each retains his freedom, and yet at the same time voluntarily subjects it to a kind of necessity, insofar as the decency of which we have spoken our charity demands. Next, that in the observance of these things we may not fall into any superstition, nor rigidly require too much from others, let us not imagine that the worship of God is improved by a multitude of ceremonies, that not church despise church because of a difference in external discipline. Lastly, instead of here laying down any perpetual law for ourselves, let us refer the whole land and use of observances to the edification of the church, at whose request let us without offense allow not only something to be changed, but even observances which were formerly in use to be inverted. For the present age is a proof that the nature of times allows that certain rights, not otherwise impious or unbecoming, may be abrogated according to circumstances. Such was the ignorance and blindness of former times. With such erroneous ideas and pertinacious zeal did churches formerly claim to ceremonies that they can scarcely be purified from monstrous superstitions without the removal of many ceremonies which were formerly established, not without cause, and which in themselves are not chargeable with any impiety. Chapter 11 Of the Jurisdiction of the Church and the Abuses of It, as exemplified in the Papacy. There are sixteen sections. 
Section 1. It remains to consider the third, and indeed, when matters are well arranged, the principal part of ecclesiastical power, which, as we have said, consists in jurisdiction. Now the whole jurisdiction of the church relates to discipline, of which we are shortly to treat. For as no city or village can exist without a magistrate and government, so the church of God, as I have already taught, but am again obliged to repeat, needs a kind of spiritual government. This is altogether distinct from civil government, and is so far from impeding or impairing it, that it rather does much to aid and promote it. Therefore, this power of jurisdiction is, in one word, nothing but the order provided for the preservation of spiritual polity. To this end, there were established in the church from the first tribunals which might take cognizance of morals, animadvert on vices, and exercise the office of the keys. This order is mentioned by Paul in the first epistle to the Corinthians under the name of governments, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. In like manner, in the epistle to the Romans, when he says, quote, He that ruleth with diligence, unquote, Romans 12, verse 8. For he is not addressing magistrates, none of whom were then Christians, but those who were joined with pastors in the spiritual government of the church. In the epistle to Timothy, also, he mentions two kinds of presbyters, some who labor in the word and others who do not perform the office of preaching but rule well, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. By this latter class, there is no doubt he means those who were appointed to the inspection of manners and the whole use of the keys. For the power of which we speak wholly depends on the keys which Christ bestowed on the church in the 18th chapter of Matthew, where he orders that those who despise private admonition should be sharply rebuked in public, and if they persist in their contumacy, be expelled from the society of believers. Moreover, those admonitions and corrections cannot be made without investigation, and hence the necessity of some judicial procedure and order. Wherefore, if we would not make void the promise of the keys, and abolish altogether excommunication, solemn admonitions, and everything of that description, we must of necessity give some jurisdiction to the church. Let the reader observe that we are not here treating of the general authority of doctrine, as in Matthew 21 and John 20, but maintaining that the right of the Sanhedrin is transferred to the fold of Christ. Till that time the power of government had belonged to the Jews. This Christ establishes in his church, insofar as it was a pure institution and with a heavy sanction. Thus it behoved to be, since the judgment of the poor and despised church might otherwise be spurned by rash and haughty men, and lest it occasion any difficulty to the reader that Christ in the same words makes a considerable difference between the two things, it will here be proper to explain. There are two passages which speak of binding and loosing. The one is Matthew 16, where Christ, after promising that he will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter, immediately adds, quote, Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Unquote. Matthew 16, verse 19. These words have the very same meaning as those in the Gospel of John, where, being about to send forth the disciples to preach, after breathing on them, he says, quote, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Unquote. John 20, verse 23. I will give an interpretation, not subtle, not forced, not rested, but genuine, natural, and obvious. This command concerning remitting and retaining sins, and that promise made to Peter concerning binding and loosing, ought to be referred to nothing but the ministry of the word. When the Lord committed it to the apostles, he at the same time provided them with his power of binding and loosing. For what is the sum of the gospel, but just that all, being the slaves of sin and death, are loosed and set free by the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, while those who do not receive and acknowledge Christ as a deliverer and redeemer are condemned and doomed to eternal chains. When the Lord delivered this message to his apostles to be carried by them into all nations in order to prove that it was his own message and proceeded from him, he honored it with this distinguished testimony, and that as an admirable confirmation both to the apostles themselves and to all those to whom it was to come. It was of importance that the apostles should have a constant and complete assurance of their preaching, which they were not only to exercise with infinite labor, anxiety, molestation, and peril, but ultimately to seal with their blood, that they might know that it was not in vain or void, but full of power and efficacy. It was of importance, I say, that amidst all their anxieties, dangers, and difficulties, they might feel persuaded that they were doing the work of God, that though the whole world withstood and opposed them, that they might know that God was for them, 
that not having Christ the author of their doctrine bodily present on the earth, they might understand that he was in heaven to confirm the truth of the doctrine which he had delivered to them. On the other hand, it was necessary that their hearers should be most certainly assured that the doctrine of the gospel was not the word of the apostles, but of God himself, not a voice rising from the earth, but descending from heaven. For such things as the forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life, and message of salvation cannot be in the power of man. Christ therefore testified that in the preaching of the gospel the apostles only acted ministerially, that it was he who by their mouths as organs spoke and promised all, that therefore the forgiveness of sins which they announced was the true promise of God, the condemnation which they pronounced the certain judgment of God. This attestation was given to all ages and remains firm, rendering all certain and secure that the word of the gospel by whomsoever it may be preached is the very word of God promulgated at the supreme tribunal written in the book of life ratified firm and fixed in heaven we now understand that the power of the keys is simply the preaching of the gospel in those places and in so far as men are concerned it is not so much power as ministry properly speaking Christ did not give this power to men but to his word of which he made men the ministers Section 2. The other passage in which binding and loosing are mentioned is in the 18th chapter of Matthew, where Christ says, quote, If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Unquote. Matthew 18, verses 17 and 18. This passage is not altogether similar to the former, but is to be understood somewhat differently. But in saying that they are different, I do not mean that there is not much affinity between them. First, they are similar in this, that they are both general statements, that there is always the same power of binding and losing, namely by the word of God, the same command, the same promise. They differ in this, that the former passage relates specially to the preaching which the ministers of the word perform, the latter relates to the discipline of excommunication which has been committed to the church. Now the church binds him whom she excommunicates, not by plunging him into eternal ruin and despair, but condemning his life and manners, and admonishing him that unless he repent, he is condemned. She loses him whom she receives into communion, because she makes him, as it were, a partaker of the unity which she has in Christ Jesus. Let no one, therefore, contumaciously despise the judgment of the church, or account it a small matter that he is condemned by the suffrages of the faithful. The Lord testifies that such judgment of the faithful is nothing else than the promulgation of his own sentence, and that what they do on earth is ratified in heaven. For they have the word of God by which they condemn the perverse. They have the word by which they take back the penitent into favor. Now they cannot err nor disagree with the judgment of God, because they judge only according to the law of God, which is not an uncertain or worldly opinion, but the holy will of God, an oracle of heaven. On these two passages, which I think I have briefly as well as familiarly and truly expounded, these madmen, without any discrimination, as they are borne along by their spirit of giddiness, attempt to found at one time confession, at another excommunication at another jurisdiction, at another the right of making laws, at another indulgences. The former passage they adduce for the purpose of rearing up the primacy of the Roman See. So well known are the keys to those who have thought proper to fit them with locks and doors that you would say their whole life had been spent in the mechanic art. Section 3. Some, in imagining that all these things were temporary, as magistrates were still strangers to our profession of religion, are led astray by not observing the distinction and dissimilarity between ecclesiastical and civil power. The church has not the right of the sword to punish or restrain, has no power to coerce, no prison, nor other punishments which the magistrate is wont to inflict. Then the object in view is not to punish the sinner against his will, but to obtain a profession of penitence by voluntary chastisement. The two things, therefore, are widely different, because neither does the church assume anything to herself which is proper to the magistrate, nor is the magistrate competent to what is done by the church. This will be made clearer by an example. Does anyone get intoxicated? In a well-ordered city, this punishment will be imprisonment. Has he committed whoredom? the punishment will be similar, or rather more severe. The satisfaction will be given to the laws, the magistrates, and the external tribunal. But the consequence will be that the offender will give no signs of repentance, but will rather fret and murmur. Will the church not here interfere? 
Such persons cannot be admitted to the Lord's Supper without doing injury to Christ and his sacred institution. Reason demands that he who by a bad example gives offense to the church shall remove the offense which he has caused by a formal declaration of repentance. The reason adduced by those who take a contrary view is frigid. Christ, they say, gave this office to the church when there were no magistrates to execute it. But it often happens that the magistrate is negligent, nay, sometimes himself requires to be chastised, as was the case with the emperor Theodosius. Moreover, the same thing may be said regarding the whole ministry of the word. Now, therefore, according to that view, let pastors cease to censure manifest iniquities, let them cease to chide, accuse, and rebuke. For there are Christian magistrates who ought to correct these things by the laws and the sword. But as the magistrate ought to purge the church of offenses by corporal punishment and coercion, so the minister ought in his turn to assist the magistrate in diminishing the number of offenders. Thus they ought to combine their efforts, the one being not an impediment but a help to the other. Section 4. And indeed, on attending more closely to the words of Christ, it will readily appear that the state and order of the church there described is perpetual, not temporary. For it were incongruous that those who refuse to obey our admonitions should be transferred to the magistrate, a course, however, which would be necessary if he were to succeed to the place of the church. Why should the promise, quote, Verily I say unto you, What things soever ye shall bind on earth, unquote, be limited to one or to a few years? Moreover, Christ has here made no new enactment, but followed the custom always observed in the church of his ancient people, thereby intimating that the church cannot dispense with the spiritual jurisdiction which existed from the beginning. This has been confirmed by the consent of all times. For when emperors and magistrates began to assume the Christian name, spiritual jurisdiction was not forthwith abolished, but was only so arranged as not in any respect to impair civil jurisdiction or be confounded with it, and justly. For the magistrate, if he is pious, will have no wish to exempt himself from the common subjection of the children of God, not the least part of which is to subject himself to the church, judging according to the word of God. So far is it from being his duty to abolish that judgment. For, as Ambrose says, quote, What more honorable title can an emperor have than to be called a son of the church? A good emperor is within the church, not above the church, unquote. Those, therefore, who to adorn the magistrate strip the church of this power, not only corrupt the sentiment of Christ by false interpretation, but pass no light condemnation on the many holy bishops who have existed since the days of the apostles, for having on a false pretext usurped the honor and office of the civil magistrate. Section 5. But, on the other hand, it will be proper to see what was anciently the true use of ecclesiastical discipline, and how great the abuses which crept in, that we may know what of ancient practice is to be abolished, and what restored, if we would, after overthrowing the kingdom of Antichrist, again set up the true kingdom of Christ. First, the object in view is to prevent the occurrence of scandals, and when they arise, to remove them. And the use, two things are to be considered. First, that this spiritual power be altogether distinct from the power of the sword. Secondly, that it be not administered at the will of one individual, but by lawful consistory. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4. Both were observed in the purer times of the church. For holy bishops did not exercise their power by fine, imprisonment, or other civil penalties, but as became them, employed the word of God only. For the severest punishment of the church, and, as it were, her last thunderbolt, is excommunication, which is not used unless in necessity. This, moreover, requires neither violence nor physical force, but is contented with the might of the word of God. In short, the jurisdiction of the ancient church was nothing else than, if I may so speak, a practical declaration of what Paul teaches concerning the spiritual power of pastors. Quote, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience. Unquote. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4-6 through 6. As this is done by the preaching of doctrine, so in order that doctrine may not be held in derision, those who profess to be of the household of faith ought to be judged according to the doctrine which is taught. Now this cannot be done without connecting with the office of the ministry a right of summoning those who are to be privately admonished or sharply rebuked, a right, moreover, of keeping back from the communion of the Lord's Supper those who cannot be admitted without profaning this high ordinance. Hence, when Paul elsewhere asks, 
quote, What have I to do to judge them also that are without? Unquote. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, he makes the members of the church subject to censures for the correction of their vices, and intimates the existence of tribunals from which no believer is exempted. Section 6. This power, as we have already stated, did not belong to an individual who could exercise it as he pleased, but belonged to the consistory of elders, which was in the church what a council is to a city. Cyprian, when mentioning those by whom it was exercised in his time, usually associates the whole clergy with the bishop. In another place he shows that though the clergy presided, the people at the same time were not excluded from cognizance, for he thus writes, quote, From the commencement of my bishopric I determined to do nothing without the advice of the clergy, nothing without the consent of the people, unquote. But the common and usual method of exercising this jurisdiction was by the council of presbyters, of whom, as I have said, there were two classes. Some were for teaching, others were only censors of manners. This institution gradually degenerated from its primitive form, so that in the time of Ambrose, the clergy alone had cognizance of ecclesiastical causes. Of this he complains in the following terms, Quote, The ancient synagogue, and afterwards the church, had elders, without whose advice nothing was done. This has grown obsolete, by whose fault I know not, unless it be by the sloth, or rather the pride of teachers, who would have it seen that they only are somewhat, unquote. We see how indignant this holy man was, because the better state was in some degree impaired, and yet the order which then existed was at least tolerable. What then had he seen those shapeless ruins which exhibit no trace of the ancient edifice? How would he have lamented? First, contrary to what was right and lawful, the bishop appropriated to himself what was given to the whole church. For this is just as if the consul had expelled the senate and usurped the whole empire. For as he is superior in rank to the others, so the authority of the consistory is greater than that of one individual. It was therefore a gross iniquity when one man, transferring the common power to himself, paved the way for tyrannical license, robbed the church of what was its own, suppressed and discarded the consistory ordained by the Spirit of Christ. Section 7. But as evil always produces evil, the bishops, disdaining this jurisdiction as a thing unworthy of their care, devolved it on others, hence the appointment of officials to supply their place. I am not now speaking of the character of this class of persons. All I say is that they differ in no respect from civil judges, and yet they call it spiritual jurisdiction, though all the litigation relates to worldly affairs. Were there no other evil in this, how can they presume to call a litigious forum a church court? But there are admonitions. There is excommunication. This is the way in which God is mocked. Does some poor man owe a sum of money? He is summoned. If he appears, he is found liable. When found liable, if he pays not, he is admonished. After the second admonition, the next step is excommunication. If he appears not, he is admonished to appear. If he delays, he is admonished, and by and by excommunicated. I ask, is there any resemblance whatever between this and the institution of Christ, or ancient custom, or ecclesiastical procedure? But there, too, vices are censured. Whoredom, lasciviousness, drunkenness, and similar iniquities, they not only tolerate, but by a kind of tacit approbation, encourage and confirm, and that not among the people only, but also among the clergy. Out of many they summon a few, either that they may not seem to wink too strongly, or that they may mulct them in money. I say nothing of the plunder, rapine, peculation, and sacrilege which are there committed. I say nothing of the kind of persons who are, for the most part, appointed to the office. It is enough, and more than enough, that when the Romanists boast of their spiritual jurisdiction, we are ready to show that nothing is more contrary to the procedure instituted by Christ, that it has no more resemblance to ancient practice than darkness has to light. Section 8. Although we have not said all that might here be adduced, and even what has been said is only briefly glanced at, enough, I trust, has been said to leave no man in doubt that the spiritual power on which the Pope plumes himself, with all his adherents, his impious contradiction of the word of God, and unjust tyranny against his people. Under the name of spiritual power, I include both their audacity in framing new doctrines, by which they led the miserable people away from the genuine purity of the word of God, the iniquitous traditions by which they ensnared them, and the pseudo-ecclesiastical jurisdiction which they exercised by suffragans and officials. For if we allow Christ to reign amongst us, the whole of that domination cannot but immediately tumble and fall. The right of the sword, which they also claim for themselves, not being exercised against consciences, does not fall to be considered in this place. Here, however, it is worthwhile to observe 
that they are always like themselves, there being nothing which they less resemble than that which they would be thought to be, these pastors of the church. I speak not of the vices of particular men, but of the common wickedness, and consequently the pestiferous nature of the whole order, which is thought to be mutilated, if not distinguished by wealth and haughty titles. If in this matter we seek the authority of Christ, there can be no doubt that he intended to debar the ministers of his word from civil domination and worldly power when he said, Quote, The princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. Unquote. Matthew 20, verses 25 and 26. For he intimates not only that the office of pastor is distinct from the office of prince, but that the things differ so widely that they cannot be united in the same individual. Moses indeed held both. Exodus 18, verse 16. But, first, this was the effect of a rare miracle, and secondly, it was temporary until matters should be better arranged. For when a certain form is prescribed by the Lord, the civil government is left to Moses, and he is ordered to resign the priesthood to his brother and justly, for it is more than nature can do for one man to bear both burdens. This has in all ages been carefully observed in the church. Never did any bishop, so long as any true appearance of a church remained, think of usurping the right of the sword, so that, in the age of Ambrose, it was a common proverb that emperors longed more for the priesthood than priests for imperial power. For the expression which he afterwards adds was fixed in all minds, palaces belong to the emperor, churches to the priest. Section 9. But after a method was devised by which bishops might hold the title, honor, and wealth of their office without burden and solicitude, that they might be left altogether idle, the right of the sword was given them, or rather they themselves usurped it. With what pretext will they defend this effrontery? Was it the part of bishops to entangle themselves with the cognizance of causes and the administration of states and provinces and embrace occupations so very alien to them, of bishops who require so much time and labor in their own office that though they devote themselves to it diligently and entirely without distraction from other avocations, they are scarcely sufficient? But such is their perverseness that they hesitate not to boast that in this way the dignity of Christ's kingdom is duly maintained, and they at the same time are not withdrawn from their own vocation. In regard to the former allegation, if it is a comely ornament of the sacred office that those holding it be so elevated as to become formidable to the greatest monarchs, they have ground to expostulate with Christ, who in this respect has grievously curtailed their honor. For what, according to their view, can be more insulting than these words? Quote, the kings of the Gentiles exercise authority over them, unquote. Quote, but ye shall not be so, unquote. Luke 22, verses 25 and 26. And yet he imposes no harder law on his servants than he had previously laid on himself. Quote, who, unquote, says he, quote, made me a judge or divider over you, unquote. Luke 12, verse 14. We see that he unreservedly refuses the office of judging. And this he would not have done if the thing had been in accordance with his office. To the subordination to which the Lord thus reduced himself, will his servants not submit? The other point I wish they would prove by experience as easily as they allege it. But as it seemed to the apostles not good to leave the word of God and serve tables, so these men are thereby forced to admit, though they are unwilling to be taught, that it is not possible for the same person to be a good bishop and a good prince. For if those who, in respect of the largeness of the gifts with which they were endued, were able for much more numerous and weighty cares than any who have come after them, confess that they could not serve the ministry of the word and of tables without giving way under the burden, how are these, who are no men at all when compared with the apostles, possibly to surpass them a hundred times in diligence? The very attempt is most impudent and audacious presumption. Still we see the thing done. With what success is plain. The result could not but be that they have deserted their own functions and removed to another camp. Section 10. There can be no doubt that this great progress has been made from slender beginnings. They could not reach so far at one step, but at the same time by craft and wily art, secretly raised themselves before anyone foresaw what was to happen. At another time, when occasion offered by means of threats and terror, extorted some increase of power from princes, at another time, when they saw princes disposed to give liberally, they abused their foolish and inconsiderate facility. The godly in ancient times, when any dispute arose in order to escape the necessity of a lawsuit, left the decision to the bishop, because they had no doubt of his integrity. The ancient bishops were often greatly dissatisfied at being entangled in such matters, as Augustine somewhere declares. 
but lest the party should rush to some contentious tribunal unwillingly submitted to the annoyance. These voluntary decisions, which altogether differed from forensic strife, these men have converted into ordinary jurisdiction. As cities and districts, when for some time pressed with various difficulties, betook themselves to the patronage of the bishops and threw themselves on their protection, these men have, by a strange artifice, out of patrons made themselves masters. That they have seized a good part by a violence of faction cannot be denied. The princes, again, who spontaneously conferred jurisdiction on bishops, were induced to it by various causes. Though their indulgence had some appearance of piety, they did not, by this preposterous liberality, consult in the best manner for the interests of the church, whose ancient and true discipline they thus corrupted, nay, to tell the truth, completely abolished. Those bishops who abused the goodness of princes to their own advantage gave more than sufficient proof by this one specimen of their conduct that they were not at all true bishops. Had they had one spark of the apostolic spirit, they would doubtless have answered in the words of Paul, quote, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, unquote, but spiritual. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. But hurried away by blind cupidity, they lost themselves and posterity and the church. Section 11. At length the Roman pontiff, not content with moderate districts, laid hands first on kingdoms and thereafter on empire. And that he may on some pretext or other retain possession secured by mere robbery, he boasts at one time that he holds it by divine right. At another he pretends a donation from Constantine. At another some different title. First I answer with Bernard. Quote, be it that on some ground or other he can claim it, it is not by apostolic right. For Peter could not give what he had not, but what he had he gave to his successors, viz. care of the churches. But when our Lord and Master says that he was not appointed a judge between two, the servant and disciple ought not to think it unbecoming not to be judge of all, unquote. Bernard is speaking of civil judgments, for he adds, quote, Your power then is in sins, not in rights of property, since for the former and not the latter you receive the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Which of the two seems to you the higher dignity, the forgiving of sins, or the dividing of lands? There is no comparison. These low, earthly things have for their judges the kings and princes of the earth. Why do you invade the territories of others, unquote, etc.? Again, quote, you are made superior, unquote. He is addressing Pope Eugenius. Quote, for what? Not to domineer, I presume. Let us therefore remember, however highly we think of ourselves, that a ministry is laid upon us, not a dominion given to us. Learn that you have need of a slender rod, not of a scepter, to do the work of a prophet, unquote. Again, quote, it is plain that the apostles are prohibited to exercise dominion. Go you therefore and dare to usurp for yourself either apostleship with dominion or dominion with apostleship, unquote. Immediately after he says, quote, the apostolic form is this, dominion is interdicted, ministry is enjoined, unquote. Though Bernard speaks thus, and so speaks as to make it manifest to all that he speaks truth, nay, though without a word the thing itself is manifest, the Roman pontiff was not ashamed at the council of Arles to decree that the supreme right of both swords belonged to him of divine right. Section 12. As far as pertains to the donation of Constantine, those who are moderately versant in the history of the time have no need of being told that the claim is not only fabulous but also absurd. But to say nothing of history, Gregory alone is a fit and most complete witness to this effect. For wherever he speaks of the emperor, he calls him his most serene lord and himself his unworthy servant. Again, in another passage, he says, quote, Let not our Lord in respect of worldly power be too soon offended with priests, but with excellent consideration on account of him whose servants they are, let him while ruling them also pay them due reverence, unquote. We see how in a common subjection he desires to be accounted one of the people, for he there pleads not another's, but his own cause. Again, quote, I trust in Almighty God that he will give long life to pious rulers and place us under your hand according to his mercy, unquote. I have not adduced these things here from any intention thoroughly to discuss the question of Constantine's donation, but only to show my readers, by the way, how childishly the Romanists tell lies when they attempt to claim an earthly empire for their pontiff. The more vile the impudence of Augustine Stoicus, who in so desperate a cause presumed to lend his labor and his tongue to the Roman pontiff, Vala, as was easy for a man of learning and acuteness to do, had completely refuted this fable. And yet, as he was little versant in ecclesiastical affairs, he had not said all that was relevant to the subject. Stoicus breaks in and scatters his worthless quibbles, trying to bury the clear light, 
and certainly he pleads the cause of his master a lot less frigidly than some wit might, under pretense of defending the same view, support that of Allah. But the cause is a worthy one which the Pope may well hire such patrons to defend. Equally worthy are the hired ravers whom the hope of gain may deceive, as was the case with Eugubinus. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent out your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26 3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.